We're in a series called The Beatitudes, The Portrait of a Disciple. And we've been saying throughout this series that the Beatitudes are found in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first 12 verses, and together they constitute a picture of what a disciple of Jesus is like, uh, as well as promises for what awaits disciples of Jesus. So the Beatitudes are a portrait, right, of what a disciple of Jesus is like. They are not a list of, of commands or things that you're supposed to try to live up to to earn God's favor. Rather, they are things that are true and that are ever becoming more true of a disciple, all right? And this morning, we're looking at the sixth beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. So I'm going to read the, the verse, and uh, then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll dive in, okay? Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for another wonderful day. I thank you, God, for the local church. I thank you for the gift of being able to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ to sing your word, to pray your word, to hear your word read, to preach your word, to listen to your word, and to walk out your word together. God, we need your help in this moment because apart from your spirit, we can't discern the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. Um, Lord, I certainly cannot preach in my strength. I can't change the heart of one person here. I, I can't help anyone uh, understand. I can't put this passage into anyone. God, you must do that work. And so I pray now for your help, Spirit of God, as, as we meditate on the scriptures, as we hear them, would you Show us, God, how you want us to respond. God, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, you know everything about us. You know our motives. We're going to talk a lot about our motives this morning. We're going to talk about what it means to be pure in heart. God, you know the state of every single heart here in this room. You know our, our, our sorrows. You know our worries. You know our anxieties. You know our joys. You know our temptations. You know the things that trip us up. You know our secrets the things that nobody else in the world knows, God, you know it all. You see it all. And God, you know what we need this morning. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you administer to every single heart. I pray, God, that ultimately you would help us grasp how magnificent of a promise it is that the pure in heart shall see God. And would you cultivate in us a desire for that more than anything else? Would we come to just understand a little bit more how wonderful of a thought it is that the pure in heart will see God so that we build our lives <laughs> around that promise. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So can you remember a time when you wanted something more than anything else in the world? Just something you wanted so badly that you were willing to sacrifice to get it. I remember when I was 16, what I wanted more than anything in the world was I wanted a system in my Jeep Cherokee. Anybody know what a system is? Who knows what a system is? I wanted two 12-inch subwoofers with a 1,000-watt amplifier and a new deck, like a new stereo deck. 
I wanted that more than anything in the world. And so I got a job at a pizza shop delivering pizzas uh, in, the, in the town where I lived, and I would go around delivering pizzas, and I saved up my money. I sacrificed, and the first major purchase I ever made was that system. And I remember the day I got it installed, I was so excited, and I rolled through the streets of Houston, Texas, rattling windows and delivering pizzas, and it was glorious. It was awesome. But you know, as, as much fun as that system was, and as excited as I was, and as much as I sacrificed to get it, it's probably in a dump now. Right? Nobody has it anymore. It's probably not being used. It's in a landfill somewhere. Nobody cares about it. I certainly don't care about it. Uh, I drive a minivan around. I have no interest in drawing attention to myself, sitting at a red light. Things have changed. Today's passage talks about the one thing that we ought to seek after, even with even more zeal, something more wonderful than we could even begin to imagine. Uh, the main point of the sermon this morning is that those who worship God with all of their heart will enjoy His presence for all eternity. Those who worship God with all their heart will enjoy His presence for all eternity. This morning we're going to look at the meaning of purity of heart, the means of becoming purity, pure in heart, and the motivation for becoming pure in heart. Those are our three points as we unpack Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And my aim this morning is that each of you would say, more than anything else in the world, I want to see God. More than anything else in the world, I want to see God. I want to devote my entire life now to preparing for that day. I want to live in light of that coming promise. That's my, so there's my cards on the table. I'm already just telling you guys, that's where I'm going. That's my desire. Now, I can't make you feel that. I can't make you want, want that. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But that's been my prayer all week leading up to this morning. So let's begin by looking at the meaning of being pure in heart. What exactly does that mean? The Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard said that to be pure in heart is to will or desire one thing. It's to will one thing. The idea is a singleness of devotion or unmixed motives. What you see is what you get. That's purity of heart. There's not, you know, 98% a desire for one thing, but I've kind of got this little ulterior motive to the side. No, it's pure, undivided devotion, singular devotion to one thing. And the phrase uh, that Jesus uses is very intentional. He doesn't say, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Because Jesus was contrasting outward purity with inward purity. When the Bible talks about the heart, it speaks about the very core of who we are. Okay, So it's the center of your will and your intellect and your emotions. It's, it's your, the very center of your being. That's what the Bible is trying to describe whenever it describes the heart. And may, you probably noticed the Bible talks about the heart a lot, doesn't it? You see that in the Psalms a lot. Jesus talks about the heart a lot. And the reason is because God cares about our motives. Like he certainly cares about what we do, but he cares just as much about why we do the things that we do, right? God is not honored with worship that just goes through the motions, right? 
Now, he's not honored with worship that's self-serving or, you know, that's just in it for me. And during his ministry, Jesus regularly challenged the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of his day. And the Pharisees were very good at being outwardly pure, weren't they? They knew how to be, uh, they knew that they had to be ceremonially clean to be able to enter into the temple. If you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, we've, we finished Exodus and now we're kind of in Leviticus and there's all these laws, right? And God was teaching the people of Israel that he is holy and that we are sinners. And so we can't just waltz into the presence of God any old way. And there was a sacrificial system put in place to deal with sin, to teach people that there was a need for atonement. And so that was a good thing, but the Pharisees kind of took that and they forgot the purpose of the law and they ran with it. And they started adding all these extra laws and all that mattered to them was making sure they followed the rules as good as they possibly could. And as long as they followed all the rules, you know, ate the right foods, made sure they didn't touch anything unclean, then they felt like, sure, I can come into God's presence. I'm worthy. I'm, I'm holy. And Jesus is bringing a correction here. He's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. It's the pure in heart who will see God. You can be outwardly pure and not be pure in heart. He says it explicitly in Matthew 23, 25 and 26. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup. By the way, that word clean is the verb form of pure in our text. Same word. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. Notice blind. They don't see. They don't see God. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup. Or first be pure in heart. That the outside also may become clean. Outwardly they appeared pure. They appeared godly. But they were harboring secret sin. They had greed and self-indulgence. And if you read all of Matthew 23, Jesus goes through a laundry list of woes. It wasn't the only thing that they were harboring. Our purity is not honoring to God if it's not matched with inner purity of heart. And God sees the intentions of our hearts. And he will judge us based upon the intention of our hearts. You could fool me, you could fool everybody else in the church, but we, none of us can fool God. Like at the end of the day, we're all going to stand bare before his throne on Judgment Day. And all of it's going to come out. Every motive, all of it is going to be laid bare. And remember, Jesus said that the whole law is summed up in what? Loving God with all of our hearts. With all our heart. In other words, a pure heart. Undivided devotion. Single-hearted devotion. That, that's what, it's really the same thing. When Jesus says, talks about being pure in heart, he's basically saying we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. That's to be the driving motivation of obedience. So let me ask you, do you have a pure heart? Here's some questions to consider to kind of think through that. Does what you do in public match what you are in private? Does what you do in public match what you are in private? All of us should probably feel a bit of a sting because I don't think any of us can say that we are completely in public what we are in private, right? This week, a well-known worship pastor, uh, this past week, was fired for inappropriate texts dating back to 2011 uh, with other people in his church. 
2011. For over a decade, he wrote and sang worship songs, but inside he was full of uncleanness. If you are presenting yourself in public as someone that you are not in private, then you aren't being honest with God, you're not being honest with others, and you're not being honest with yourself. And you need to understand that your sin will find you out. It will find you out. No matter how badly you fool others, God knows exactly what's going on. And my prayer is that God will graciously expose it now because it's only the pure in heart who will see God. And the good news is that God is merciful and gracious, right? You can confess sin and bring it into the light because if we confess our sin, He's what? He's just to forgive us our sin, absolutely, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we don't have to be afraid to bring our sin into the light. It can seem scary because we think intuitively that we're going to be met with judgment, and so we need to cover it up. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? What do they do? They hide in the bushes, which is a silly thing to do because you can't hide from God. Like, oh, good job, Adam and Eve. Maybe God won't find you, the sovereign creator of the Lord who's omnipotent and omnipresent. Maybe you'll have a great hiding spot in the bushes and you'll never be found out. It's preposterous to try to hide your sin from God. He sees it already, so why don't you just confess it and bring it into the light so that he can make you clean? That's what he wants to do. And here's the deal. It's also safe to bring your sin into the light in the church because every single one of us are broken sinners desperately in need of God's grace. In fact, the safest place on the planet to be honest about who you really are at the core, to be honest about your motives, is the local church. And I, I feel like I need to say this. Um, perhaps you, have, you were a part of a church in the past where it wasn't safe to be honest about who you were. And I want you to know that man, I'm so sorry that you uh, had that experience. Because um, that's not what Jesus is like. That's not what Jesus is like. Jesus is gentle and lowly. Jesus loves sinners. Just think about the way that Jesus dealt with sinners, with tax collectors with prostitutes? Was he heavy-handed? Was, was he quick to uh, put them down or mock them or cast them away if they made a mistake? Did he get tired of the, dis the bumbling disciples every time they made a mistake and couldn't seem to get things right and argued over who was going to be first in the kingdom of heaven over and over and over again? Right? No, he didn't. He's patient, he's gentle, and that's what the church is meant to be. And by God's grace, I believe our church is like that. And um, our elders strive for our church to be like that, and we want you to know that this is a safe place for you to confess sin because you're going to be met with grace, not just by the Lord, but by every single person in this room. All right? So, does what you do in public match what you are in private? Uh, another question to ask yourself as you ponder, am I pure in heart, is, is your worship of God motivated by a love for God? So Jesus, later in the Sermon on the Mount, he asks in Matthew 6, 1, or he says in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, you can, and then he goes on to talk about giving, prayer, and fasting. He's saying, don't practice your worship of God giving, prayer, fasting, or anything else in order to be seen by other people, in order to impress other people, because at that point, you're not worshiping God. You're serving yourself, right? So our motives matter in worship. And then the third question 
is your service of others motivated by a pure love for others? In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, when you give a banquet or a dinner, invite the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame, and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. It's easy to invite people over if you think, you know, you're going to get something in return or to serve somebody because you think, well, I'm going to get something out of this deal. But Jesus is talking about serving and loving others with no strings attached. Love that comes from a pure heart has only one goal, and that is the good of the other. That's the goal of love that comes from a pure heart, the good of the one we are loving. Now, if it were on us, on ourselves, to be pure in heart, let's be honest, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? None of us can claim to be 100% pure in heart all of the time. None of us. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 asks rhetorically, it says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? The answer is nobody, right? Right? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can say, I've made my heart clean. I'm pure from my sin. So what do we do? If only the pure in heart can see God, how do we become pure in heart? And that leads to the second point this morning. The means to becoming pure in heart. The bottom line is that to become pure in heart, God must give you a new heart. Through the gospel... God actually gives us the pure heart that is required to see him. And this promise is made in many places in the Old Testament, but the clearest is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 26. And I want you to listen to God's promise here. And as we hear it, keep in mind Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. The Lord says through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Again, that's the same word for pure. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. There it is again. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. Could it be any clearer? God gives us the pure heart that is required to see God as a gift of His grace. He says, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will take out your old heart of stone, your old impure heart that was filled with corruption. He gives us a heart that loves him and wants to obey his commands. And that happens through the new birth, through being born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. And through the blood of Jesus, he also cleanses us by removing the guilt of our sin that separates us from God. And this is a free gift that is received by faith in Jesus Christ alone, who died for us while we were sinners and then rose from the dead. And when you place your faith in him, he sends the promise of his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you and to change your heart. So today, you can be made new. If you have never been made new, if you've never been born again, you can call on the name of the Lord Jesus today and he can give you a new heart. But that's the only way for you to have this inner purity of heart that Jesus talks about. 
If you try to do it in your own strength, you're just going to be cleaning the outside of the dish. You're going to be polishing this dish the rest of your life. Meanwhile, the inside of it is full of filth, and you're going to get to the inside of your to the end of your life, and you're going to have a dish that's shiny on the outside and filthy on the inside, and you won't see God. That's what it's like to try to be made right before God by your own works. That's why we're only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone who cleanses us from sin and gives us the new heart we need to see God. And now, even though God does give us a new heart, that doesn't mean that our motives like automatically become 100% pure, does it? Because you know, many of you in here, you're born-again Christians, you'd say, but Jared, I still have impure motives. I see it in myself. Well, it's because there is an already and a not yet aspect to purity of heart. We are already pure in heart to one degree, but we're still becoming ever more pure in heart at the same time. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and we said positionally we are righteous before God, but practically we're still being made righteous, learning to walk out that righteousness. Same concept. It's called the process of sanctification. We're made new but we kind of, we carry stuff from our old life into our new life in Christ, like this baggage, and these things can hinder us from a pure devotion to God. They could be things like pride, or the love of comfort, or anger, or jealousy, or the love of the praise of man. And these desires, they kind of nip at the heels of our, of our motives, and can even infect our worship. And it, it really bother you if you're a Christian. Um, I love how Henry Martin, he was a, an English missionary to Turkey in the early 1800s, kind of captures this tension well in this quote. He said, Men frequently admire me and I am pleased, but I abhor the pleasure that I feel. <laughs> I love that short, pithy quote. Men admire me and I am pleased, but I abhor the pleasure that I feel. The reality is, is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17 says that. And that really is true. And the longer that you walk with God, the more you realize it. So while God does give us a new heart, there's a continual process of purification happening in our hearts. And the pure in heart are, are ever becoming more pure in heart as we seek to put off the old self and put on the new self. But we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in our own strength, so it's not as though God saves us by His grace, and then it's up to us to finish the job of becoming pure in heart. No, the Holy Spirit is the one giving us the desire and even the ability to do what's pleasing to God. It's the Spirit of God helping us to ever grow more pure in heart. So, how can we practically grow in purity of heart. How can we seek after this with the Spirit's help? Let me give you two, two things. Number one, ask God to search your heart. Ask God to search your heart. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, David's, uh, the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is the, the heart cry of someone who is pure in heart and wants to become more pure in heart. 
Now, of course, God already knows our hearts, right? Uh, Whether we pray this prayer or not. But David was asking God not just to find out his motives, but to expose them and then lead him in the way everlasting. You see, David was saying, God, show me the motives of my own heart because I'm probably blind. I have blind spots in my own heart and in my own life that are sinful that I want to see. There's probably pride lurking somewhere in there that I can't see, or there's jealousy lurking somewhere that I can't see, or there's anger lurking somewhere that I can't see, and I want it exposed because I want to root it out. I don't want to coast, right? I want to be pure in heart. I want, to, I want my heart to be completely bare and pure before you. So God, even though it's going to be a painful process, expose those things in me. Search me. Know me. See if there's an un- any unclean way. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's the prayer of a pure heart. And if you pray that, you will grow in purity of heart. And it's a dangerous prayer, right? Because God will answer it. And like I said, sometimes it can be painful. It's kind of like, you know cleaning out the minivan after a couple of months and you find all those nasty orange peels and banana peels under the seat that are rotting and it's gross and but it's good because you're cleaning the van and now the van will smell better at the end of the day right like it's a good process even if it's not a pretty process and the wonderful thing is that as these impurities are stripped away we get more intimacy with christ the pure in heart will see god so ask God to search your heart. And then secondly, ask others to hold you accountable. If you want to grow in purity of heart, then ask others to hold you accountable. As believers, you need other Christians in your life who really know you. Not just the you that you show everyone in public, but the real you. Because of the gospel, as I said earlier, you don't have to run from that. We are fully known and fully loved by God in Christ, which means we can be fully known and fully loved by each other. We can be honest with each other about our hearts, about our motives, about sin we're struggling with, and be fully loved and not have to live in shame at all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one here has it all together, so we don't have to pretend. And I'll just be honest with you, if you, if you have sin or even like motives, sinful motives you're struggling with in your life, the way that you kill them, the way you grow in purity of heart is bringing it into the light. And one of the most helpful things to do is share that with other brothers and sisters in Christ who can pray alongside of you, right? I mean, what, what a wonderful gift God has given us in the local church. That's why we, we place such a high value on our life groups throughout the week and on stages discipleship. If you're not a part of a life group or, or you don't have someone to disciple you, like Andrew um, is uh, you know, one of our pastors on staff and he oversees life groups and discipleship. He would love to talk with you about that. Obviously, come and talk to me. I'm happy to help you get plugged in as well, but we want to help you get plugged in and grow. And so please come and talk to us about that. And I, I also want to mention too, uh, Andrew asked me to mention this and I think it's, it's definitely um, appropriate. We also have a men's purity group for men who may be currently or have a history of struggling with sexual temptation. And so if, if that is an issue for you, if it's recently been an issue for you, and it's an issue for a lot of men, then I want to strongly encourage you, please don't walk alone. Because I, I'm just going to be honest, you're probably going to have a very difficult time finding victory if you do. Um, in fact, I don't know if, you, if it's even possible to have victory on your own. 
You don't have to walk that path alone. There are other men who want to walk it with you, who are walking with you. So talk to Andrew or talk to Angelo right up here in the front. Either one of these men would love to talk to you about it. They do a great job of leading out in that, okay? Uh, and please, don't walk alone through that, all right? Now, one last challenge on this point I want to give to you guys. This week, I want everybody to ask a brother or sister in Christ this question. Are there any areas of my life where you see that I need to grow? Have the courage to ask a brother or sister that question. Are there any areas of my life where you see that I need to grow? What, I, what that doesn't mean is that uh, uh, married couples, when you get in the car, that you go, hey, here's the area you need to grow. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you before you ask, right? No, no. Let's introspective here, right? Uh, and you could ask your spouse this question, but I would encourage you to go and ask another brother or sister of the same gender in, the church, in your church family this question, right? Ask one of the people in your life group, if you're being discipled by somebody, um, let me encourage you to ask that question and make it a regular habit to do so. Now, why do we do all of this? Why all of this effort to grow in purity of heart? Now, it's not to make ourselves pure so God will accept us. I've said that multiple times, but I'm going to keep saying it because our temptation is to think that, right? Jesus' blood has done that already. Jesus' blood makes us pure in God's sight, okay? We pursue purity of heart because more than anything else, we long to see God. We long to see God. And that leads us to our last point. It's the motivation for purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the promise. That's why we want to be pure in heart. It really is difficult to describe just how wonderful of a thought it is to see God. It was the greatest thing that anyone in the Old Testament could dream of. I mean, we, Andrew read the passage earlier, and Moses pleaded with the Lord, show me your glory. That's what he wanted more than anything. It's why we were made. Now, again, there's an already and a not yet aspect to this promise as well. The pure in heart see God now through eyes of faith. Those who are not pure in heart cannot see God at all. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. That's why, you know, uh, maybe you have family members who've heard the same gospel that you have or friends who've heard the same gospel that you have and you love the gospel and they can care less about it. Why is that? This is the reason, right? God, remember, God gives us this gift of a pure heart. He opens our eyes so that we see God. So you see him through eyes of faith in a way that those who are not pure in heart, who haven't been born again, are unable to. And as we grow in purity of heart, the more clearly we will see him. Purity leads to intimacy. And if you think about it, if our definition of pure, being pure in heart is singleness of devotion, then it makes sense that as we continue to strip, strip aside other things that distract us from Jesus, that uh, clamor for our attention, then we're going to be able to fix the gaze of our hearts more clearly on Him, and we're going to come to know Him more and more, right? Like if you go out on a date with your spouse, and the whole time you're just sitting there, you know, doing this, like looking at your phone, oh, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, that's not going to lead to intimacy, is it? Of course not. That's not going to lead to intimacy. What, you, what do you do? If you have any sense at all, you put that thing away and you fix your eyes on your spouse, right? You, you gaze upon the beauty of your spouse. You, you listen intently and you grow in intimacy as you do that over time. 
It's the same with our relationship with the Lord. And the most wonderful thought of all that is that one day, our faith is going to be turned to sight. Right now, we can scarcely comprehend what it will be like to see God. Kind of like a a man who's born blind struggles to understand the concept of light. Or someone who's born deaf would struggle to understand the concept of music or a song. The little knowledge that we have of God is imperfect and it's just a glimpse. But one day, the time is growing nearer and nearer when we will see him face to face. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I, uh, I previously, before we were in San Antonio, I pastored a church in Washington, D.C., and we had a guy who uh, attended our church who worked in the cabinet of the president of the United States, and he invited me to lunch one day in the West Wing. And I got to go eat lunch in the, uh, the dining hall in the West Wing of the White House, and it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Uh, you know, and, and I, I was walking around, and I was just in awe, right? It's like you're on this hallowed ground. It looks just like it does in the movie sets. You're walking past these people, who, these important officials all over the place. I mean, you've got, you know, guys with suits on and, you know, carrying around, you know, M16s. and it was crazy. I mean, it was, it was just a wild experience. I thought about the great men and women who had been right there in those very halls, that I was walking in before all throughout the history of our country. But, you know, the president had no idea I was there. He didn't know me. He, doesn't, he didn't care that I was there. He didn't ask to see me. You know, he, he never knew I even existed. And as amazing as that experience was, it's nothing compared to what awaits believers. We will not just get to be in the same vicinity of God we will see him face to face. And here's the crazy thing. He actually wants to see us. He wants us to be with him. In fact, it's the very reason that Jesus died for us. This is what God has been doing throughout the entire storyline of the Bible and of world history. Just think about all the way back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden walking with God. They sin. And they are driven away from the garden and away from the presence of the Lord. And the rest of Scripture is the unfolding story of God's plan to reconcile a people for, to himself who will dwell with him forever. That's what the whole Bible is about. So just think about it for a second. God, he rescued Israel from Egypt. He chooses them. He rescues them from Egypt. He instructed them to build the tabernacle and later the temple for his presence to dwell in. He gave them the sacrificial system to teach them that he is holy and that they need an atoning sacrifice for their sin, for God, a holy God, to dwell in their midst. But that was all just a placeholder, right? Uh, Pointing to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, because the blood of bulls and goats cannot ultimately take away sins. They had to offer these sacrifices again and again and again. But then Jesus... The, the, the word of God himself became flesh and he dwelt among us and he came to lay his life down 
as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice that removes sin forever. Christ died, 1 Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he could bring us to God or so that he could reconcile us to God. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven as king and he's promised to return. And when he returns, he's going to make all things new and he will reverse the curse of sin and death and God will dwell with man. And it all culminates, right, stretching all the way back to Genesis 3 when man is driven from the presence of God, where there's this alienation from him. Right now, we see as in a mirror dimly, and it's going to culminate in Revelation chapter 22. Listen to the remnants, to the hints of the Garden of Eden in this passage as John describes what it will be like when Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth. John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life, there you see Eden, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and here it is, They shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Y'all see what I'm seeing? That is an amazing promise. That is a new and a better Garden of Eden. The curse is reversed. There will be nothing accursed, and we will see his face. And do you see that throughout the storyline of Scripture, it's God that's taking the initiative. It's God that made the promise to Adam and Eve that he would send the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It's God that chose Abraham. It's God that rescued Israel out of Egypt. It's God that gave them the sacrificial system. It's God that sent his son to come and die for us and rise from the dead. It's God who's going to send Jesus to return and to make all things new so that he can dwell with us forever. God wants us to dwell with him forever. I was captivated by Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer this week in John chapter 17, verse 24. And as I read this, keep in mind he was praying for all who would believe in him. Okay? If you have your Bible, maybe even turn there real quick. John 17, 24. And we're going we're gonna to wrap up after uh, we look at this for a moment. Jesus says this in John 17, 24. He's praying for all who will believe in him. That means us in this room. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Wow. Jesus wants us to see the glory of his presence. He wants us to see the glory of a multitude from every tribe, and tongue, and people, and nation singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain around the throne, alongside the cherubim and the seraphim. Just a sea of people, countless, that we'll never be able to count. 
with sounding like the roar of mighty waterfalls, congregational singing like you've never heard before on this side of eternity. He wants us to see it. We can't even begin to describe the exquisite joy and the relief that's going to wash over us on that day. We'll be so in awe that we won't know whether to speak or to be silent, to stand up or to fall on our faces. When we gaze upon the face of Yahweh, who sent his son to die for us so that we could be there in that moment, all of our earthly sorrows and trials won't matter anymore. You won't remember them. It won't matter anymore. Even our hobbies and our houses and our bank accounts and all the things that we get so bent out of shape over won't matter a single bit when we see his face. It's just not going to matter at all ever again. We'll never think about it. There won't be a reason to. Because the beauty and the joy of being in his presence is unlike anything you could ever find in this world. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Those who worship God with all their hearts will enjoy his presence for all eternity. And so if that's the case, then shouldn't our highest priority be to diligently pray for, and seek to be pure in heart, right? I mean, if that's what awaits us, why would we live for anything else? Why would we get so bent out of shape and so focused on things that we're not going to care about at all when we see his face? So many things, even things that can be good things and important things, right? Like, you know, getting to the place in your career that you want to be, or, you know, you know, uh, family building and all these things are good things, right? But they're not going to matter when we gaze upon his face. They're just not. What awaits the pure in heart is far greater than all the riches the world has to offer. So as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So whatever is keeping you from single-hearted devotion to Jesus, let me urge you to set it aside and to fix your eyes fully on Him.